Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C. And with me today, as always, is Nathan Fox in San Francisco. Nathan, how's it going today? Oh, I'm awesome, man. Had a really good week. Do you like rap music at all? Uh, well, this is going to sound awful, but I don't really listen to music, period. No music at all. I know. Isn't that weird? Whoa. My wife is like, what's wrong with you? I I just prefer audiobooks and stuff like that. I guess it's kind of, <laughs> I find them more interesting, whatever the random topic is. And so I don't really listen to music, although there was a time, at, I don't even know if this would be considered rap, so people can laugh at me. I don't care. That's fine. <laughs> but in high school, most of my friends listened to Cypress Hill. Yeah, uh-huh. Would that be considered rap? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, so I think at the time, either because they were my friends and so I thought it was cool, or I actually liked it, I did listen to that at some time. Although, um, yeah, I that was so long ago, and <laughs> I don't like I said, I don't even know if it was rap. So you're like a big self improvement guy, huh? I mean, you're you you got the you got the diet exercise. Uh, not wasting time with music, going straight for the audiobooks. <laughs> I sound like a, a prude or something. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess I like audiobooks are just really interesting. I um, I I used to listen to music actually while I commuted. So I I was thinking about this on the way here, and then I, I was realizing that I don't listen to music anymore. I find it kind of boring. But when I listen to an audiobook, there's just random stories. Like I'm listening to the book that um, Richard Branson just wrote. Okay. It's called The Virgin Way. And, you know, he's just telling stories from the companies that he started in different places. And it's just, they're funny stories. One that he was just telling was he went to, he had to give a big speech a long time ago. And the guy was like, are you familiar with teleprompters? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm definitely familiar with teleprompters. Even though he wasn't, he just he felt, you know, like he had to present that persona. And the, the guy was like, OK, great. And so then he started giving the speech and the tele, the teleprompter text was moving pretty quickly. So he was he was surprised. And so he tried to read faster to stay up with it. And then. It just kept going faster and faster. And oh, because it keeps up with you? It keeps up with you. And so at the end, the guy was like, wow, you speak really fast. I can barely keep up with you. And he's like, oh, yeah, well, <laughs> just uh, just random funny stories like that, just about different things that have happened as he started all these random companies. I mean, that's just one example, but I just find those really interesting. Cool. Yeah, I never really got much into um, audiobooks. I obviously do listen to podcasts, but... Uh... Never got into the audiobooks. Well, I was going to give you a, um, a rap music recommendation, Ben, but I guess... <laughs> cool. No, I'll take it. I'll take it. I might as well add it to my, like, 16 iTunes songs. No, I wasn't... I have 17 now, <laughs> I which wasn't... I don't listen to, by the way, but I'll, I'll listen to this one. No, this no, I, I wasn't actually recommending it to you so much as I was recommending it to the <laughs> listeners, or at least just telling you about my week. Um, yeah. So I uh, really, really like Dr. Dre a lot. And okay. um, he has only released, uh, he, his last album was in 1999. And uh, I have been listening to that album basically since 1999. And all <laughs> waiting, other... Waiting for something else? Yes. <laughs> me and all other, uh, I and all other Dr. Dre fans have been waiting 
for this uh, for another album, and he released a surprise new album uh, this last week. He didn't really announce it; it just kind of appeared on Apple Music. Wow. And uh, it's called Compton, and it is his third album, and it is really, really great. And I've been listening to it just nonstop for the past week, like on repeat over and over and over and over. Um, it's an hour-long album. I've probably listened to it 40 times in the last week. And uh, it has put a spring in my step, and it's just awesome. I just <laughs> I just love it. I don't know. So um, anybody out there, if you like rap music at all, uh or Dr. Dre's new album, Compton, is just amazing. And um, movie recommendation that goes along with that uh, out in theaters now is a movie called Straight Outta Compton, which is the story of uh, the rap group NWA um, and Dr. Dre specifically. And uh, it's like a, like a documentary about um, the origins of NWA. And uh, I thought it was really cool. Um, I'm also kind of like anti-authority type of person and if uh, that's you then i think you will really dig um straight out of compton cool. so yeah i was yeah a couple couple little media recommendations <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i ended up seeing this is a much more mainstream recommendation but uh um i re- i saw mission impossible oh yeah but this the script was really good it was it was a really funny um show so is simon Pegg in that yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love Simon Pegg. Cool. Um, well, there you go. I don't think people tune into this for uh, movie and book recommendations, <laughs> and rap recommendations. Thank you. That's what you get. <laughs> uh, cool. What's on the uh, agenda for today? Yeah, so we have a, a, a number of good questions. Um, just a quick overview. We have one from Andrew who wants to know when to take the LSAT. Um, we also have one from Kaylee who's doing quite well, actually, but trying to figure out what she should focus on as she grades her tests, um, whether she should be focusing on the numbers or other things. Um, and then we have Dennis, who's concerned about a class that he took that would affect his, he says, is affecting his GPA quite a bit, and he's worried about what he should do about it. And also kind of another question related to that is when should he apply? Should he be waiting for his GPA to get better or should he apply earlier? So a lot of good questions. Let's jump into uh, Andrew's question. Oh, and we're going to do some logical reasoning today, right? Yes. Oh, sorry. Good point. We're going to do some logical reasoning at the end uh, from the June 2007 LSAT. If you don't have that, you can just Google that, June 2007 LSAT, and it will come up. It's the one LSAT that LSAT gives out for free. Um, So this actually, this email was from Andrew was to you directly, right? I think he's got some uh, of your books and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess he didn't actually send it in through the podcast. But I was I mean, going to be lazy and tell him, hey, listen to the podcast. <laughs> and then you can get your no, response. That's, that's cool. So he, I guess he got uh, Breaking the LSAT, Cheating the LSAT. What are those books again? The Breaking the LSAT's like the primer or the introduction, right? No, no. Um, so Cheating the LSAT was the first book that I wrote. And that book goes all the way through Prep Test 61. It's Prep Test 61 and a full explanation of all of Prep Test 61. Oh, okay. That's mm-hmm. the first book that I wrote. And then Breaking the LSAT. It does the same thing except for Prep Test 62. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, then my third book, Exposing the LSAT, goes through Prep Test 63. Each one mm-hmm. of those is sort of like um, a lesson in a book. It's like it's meant to be sort of replicate how I do my classes, which is essentially just you do tests and then we review those tests. 
So those are the first three books, and it looks like, uh, yeah, Andrew has a couple of them. Oh, yeah, and it looks like he actually emailed you because of those books, right? He says, in your forward, you mentioned that if I had questions, I could email you, and he did. Yeah, it's so. awesome. I have my um, my email address, and not only my email address, but my cell phone number is in um, all of my books, and it's all over my website and everything, and I love to hear from people. So they're always shocked that I actually respond, but... Uh, you know, I'm not the uh, superstar that people think I, people seem to think I am, at least. <laughs> You're a superstar. Yeah, yeah. right. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> so he says, well, he, it looks like he's from Canada, which would make sense why he says what he's about to say. But he says, it's August 18th already, and I'm thinking about writing the December yeah, right. 15 LSAT, right? So that's definitely a Writing UK, the LSAT, yeah. Canadian verbiage there, but basically he's thinking about taking the December 2015 LSAT, yep. but I'm honestly not sure if that's enough time to prepare. I'll just stop right there. That sounds like plenty of time. What would you say? Yeah, I'm always shocked why people think they need six months. Um, I mean, six months, is that's crazy. I, I've had plenty of people take a class for two months, write the LSAT, and be done with it forever. That's right. So it's not yeah, that I like that's, your usage there. Thanks. Yeah. It's not that everybody's going to be able to do it that way. But I don't I, I don't get why people start with these like crazily long timelines. So certainly if you started in August, you if you I would almost say if you can't get ready by December, if you start in August and you can't get ready by December, then maybe you just can't get ready. Period. Yeah, maybe. I mean, sometimes people it depends on why they couldn't get ready, right? I guess with their life and so forth. Yeah, it's, I guess it's like what I, I let me back off of that a little bit. If you start now and if you diligently practice until December, that ought to be sufficient. Now, if you claim to start now but you don't actually do anything between now and December, well, then yeah, okay, it could take you forever. Yeah, and you know, one thing here is maybe he should take it in December. Maybe he does need this much time, but I think shooting for October is going to make December way more likely than if he shoots for December. Yeah, now, I mean, that, if, if he hasn't done any prep, right, and he's starting in August, then the October 3rd LSAT's going to be potentially a stretch, right? I, mm -hmm. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily tell him to sign up for that until the very last deadline day. Mm -hmm. And then if he's not feeling like he's ready, then okay, don't. And then, all right, you're going to switch out to December. But yeah, I, I generally tell people, hey, whatever the next upcoming test is, like that's the one you should be, you know, let's ramp it up. Let's see if we can get ready for that one. And if yeah. not, then we'll get ready for the next one. Yeah. So he says, I've seen some guides suggest 100 to 150 hours of prep. Wow. Which is um, what we were just talking about. And some as much as 200 to 300 hours, I'm willing to give it my all, uh, <laughs> giving up all my weekends and nights to study, but I am also different from a lot of people writing the exam. Um, I've been out of school for eight years. It's been four years since my professional practice exam. He's an engineer. Okay. And I'm concerned that I need more time to get back into the rhythm of studying and writing exams. So can I ask you two questions? course one should i write the december 2015 exam or write the june 2016 exam i think we've already answered that right go for maybe even october if you're really concerned about that go for december what would you say yeah well he also is skipping the february test in his question oh, yeah, i didn't even notice that which yeah. is a bit odd so i mean 
I usually tell people to target three tests. Um, you know, if, if, if let's say he can't get ready for October, that's fine. He's just starting now and he knows he's not going to be ready for October 3rd. That's fine. But then I would have the December date, then two backups beyond that. So I'd be looking at the December exam, which is on December 5th this year. Then I'd be looking at the February 2016 and the June 2016 as my two backup dates. Mm -hmm. uh, again, it's like hope for the best but plan for the worst kind of a strategy. I mean, my goal would be hit a home run on December 2015. But if I don't hit a home run for whatever reason on December 2015, then I'm going to take it in February of 2016. And then same thing there. If I don't hit a home run in February of 2016, then I've got another final backup date of June 2016. Yeah. So that that would be my strategy. I don't I mean is that that seems sensible to me. What do you do you tell people similar? Uh I guess it's not so laid out, but my 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 constant suggestion is if you're getting started now and um you have 2 months until the next one, go for that one cuz who knows how quickly you're going to prepare. Some people the test kind of comes quickly to them and naturally other people, they need more time, but even for the people who need more time, if they shoot for the upcoming test, I feel like they're much more likely to make progress than if they kind of think about it. Sure. It's kind of far away. Sure. But I, what you, you don't like tell people about the backup dates. I've gotten in the habit of telling people to just plan on those backup dates. I, I, I don't think I've deliberately pointed that out, but I guess it's... I guess it does come up. The idea is that hey, if you can't take it, then you can take it the next time. Or if you do take it, you can you can also retake it because that's a common question. You know, how bad does it look if I retake the exam? And I always say, well, it's ideal to take it once if you can, but it's really that's just ideal. It's not that well, bad at all. It's ideal to hit a home run on the first pitch of your at bat. Yeah, that's ideal. But if you don't hit a home run on the first pitch. Would you just like walk back to the dugout? Definitely, right then and there. Yeah, just walk <laughs> off the field and retire. <laughs> I, I can't mean, do it. I, yeah, I don't. It's like something like one third, right? Just sort of rough, rough math. One third of the people who take the test are going to score below their practice test average, right? Yeah. If we say mm -hmm. one third are going to score roughly at their practice test average one-third are going to score above their practice test average, and one-third are going to score below their practice test average. If you score below your practice test average by more than a couple points, you need to retake the test. You'd be an idiot not to retake the test. So I, I like to point that out to people and just say, hey, this this is you know could be a long process here to actually get your score on record. I'm not trying to be like a pessimist, mm -hmm. but... Um, the back, you know, the shit happens and you might need to retake the test. The, yeah. the other thing that I wanted to point out is um, people, for some reason, well, I guess I know why. It's kind of procrastination. But something that I see a lot is that people will take the December test, let's say, then do nothing after they do nothing for three weeks after the test. Then they get their results back and they're not happy with it. Then they do nothing for another couple weeks. Then they finally decide, oh, well, I better retake the test. Mm -hmm. And then they end up being not prepared to take the upcoming exam, the, the February test, the next test. Mm -hmm. 
And so yeah. then now they're into like skipping and now it's six months later and they're retaking the LSAT. Yeah. And that, I hate that. I really mm-hmm. don't, I don't, I don't dig that. I mean, if you're going to get yourself ready for this upcoming October 3rd exam, then I think December 5th, like that's your, that's your backup date. <laughs> you're not, why are we going to, if, if you, if you don't get the score you want, let's say you sit for it on October 3rd, but mm-hmm. shit happens and you don't get the score you want. Well then you need to take it on December 5th. Like I don't, I don't understand why people want to expand the LSAT for three years. Yeah. You know, let's, let's concentrate it. So I guess that's what, I guess that's another reason why I really sort of hammer on people about like, Hey, let's put these dates on your calendar and let's just get it over with. So that's interesting. So maybe it's almost like, let's plan on taking these three tests. And if you happen to get a great score on the first or second one, then you're done. Hope for the best and plan for the worst. So like when I work backward with people for, you know, they talk about admissions calendar. Like if I get, if I get my hands on somebody who's kind of early in the process, like I love it when I talk to a, you know, a a sophomore in college, Mm -hmm. if I get my hands on a, on a, a brand new, you know, somebody who is like, okay, tell me what to do. How do I do this perfectly? Then I'm like, well, if you're going to go straight to law school after undergrad, then let's work backward from the date that you're going to apply. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to apply a year before school starts. And then, and then I work backward with three test dates so that people have like their, their number one test date. And yeah, hopefully they get it done on that number one test date. Mm-hmm. But if things go wrong for whatever reason, then now they've got another test date and even a third emergency test date. And then they can just sort of see it on their calendar. Like, well, here's my LSAT world and that'll be done for sure. It'll be done. Mm-hmm. And then I can move on with the rest of my life. I do have students. I'm sure you've got one or two who have been like working on the LSAT for four years. Four years sounds a little long, but maybe a year or two. Or yeah. I, I have had them that have been, you know, they work on it for a while, then they stop, then they come back, then they stop yeah. again, then they yeah, come no, back I three years saying. later. Like, like, yeah, I took the LSAT three years ago. I haven't done anything, but now I'm getting back into it or something. I guess I can see that. I, I guess I can see, like, taking a, a break. But um, anyway, I, I don't, yeah. <laughs> the LSAT, you know, the people out there listening, you don't want to spend your life on the LSAT like Ben and I do, (laughs) (laughs) you know, we're, we're special. Um, you don't need to be doing this like we do. So you, I think should concentrate it and you should really commit to it and you should just like get it done. Yeah, I agree. So anyways, that's what I would advise Andrew. I think Andrew, if, if December 2015 is going to be his first test, then I think February 2016 is his backup and June 2016 is his backup backup. And then that's it. Sounds good. All right. What's his next question? Question number two. Will I be at a disadvantage writing the June 2016 exam since there will be many more students writing? Um, no. 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 doesn't matter. This, this scoring scale doesn't change based on the number of people taking the test. So there's absolutely no disadvantage to taking the June 2016 test. That's right. And if I'm correct in this, the scale has, I do know the scale has already been set before the June 2016 test takers take the test. And I think it was set based on the performance of previous test takers who took those (laughs) questions 
in their experimental sections. Right. right. That's how I understand it. It's the test is scaled, not curved. Um, if it's curved, that means you're actually competing against the other people taking the test, and your your score will be relative. Uh, report, you know, they'll, they'll calculate it relative to the other people. That's not how they do it on the LSAT. On the LSAT, they set the scoring scale before you take the exam. They've determined um, the difficulty of the questions and the sections, and they do that, I think, via the experimental section. So you still are competing against test takers, but it's like a whole random slew of test takers over various tests, not just the test you're taking, or not... It does not include the test you're taking at all, actually. Right. It is. It just. It. It's. You're not competing with the people on that day. You're competing yeah. with the people on previous days, uh, in their experimental sections. Yeah. Okay. And I still so, don't understand why they do that. It seems way unnecessarily complicated. If I was them, I would just curve it. I know the counter argument is like, well, but if you if they curved it, then people could game it by taking the test in certain seasons when there's a softer field. Mm-hmm. But my retort to that is always if that were possible, it would be a self-correcting kind of a thing because if it got out there that the February test was soft, then everybody who's smart would take it in February and then the February test wouldn't be soft anymore. Yeah. I mean, at least that's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why they do that. I mean, I guess, yeah. Hmm. But anyways, it doesn't matter. No. So, um, yeah, so no, there's no disadvantage to taking the test when everybody else is taking it uh, at all. And Andrew, thanks for your um, email. I would say get started now, shoot for potentially the October tests, and if not, shoot for December and then all the backups like we discussed. Yep. Great. Okay, so the the next uh, email is from Kaylee, and she's doing pretty well. She's she told us, for example, that she took a test on Saturday morning, whenever this was, and she got 11 wrong, which translated into a 169. And then she took another test uh, the previous night before writing this email. And she got 12 wrong, which translated into a 172. That definitely reflects the changes in the the scaling, I guess. Yeah, just to repeat that for the listeners. So on one test, she got minus 11, and that was a 169. And then on the next test, she got a minus 12, and that was a higher score of a 172. So more incorrect, but a higher score. Yeah, so she's a little, not surprisingly, perplexed by that, and she's wondering when she's studying, should she A, consider primarily the number of questions she missed per section, B, her overall score, or C, ignore all of that, and just focus on correcting and learning from her mistakes. So let's start with that. What do you think she should focus on? Um, I think she and everyone else should focus on just learning from her mistakes. Um, these students are super diligent, right? They're like super earnest and they're, they're really, I, I envy them for their ability to work hard because I don't have that much of it, but they um, obsess about the numbers a lot. And instead of thinking about the numbers and worrying about the scoring scale and worrying about, yeah, I don't think the total number that she missed matters. I don't think that the LSAT score really matters. I think what matters is which ones did you miss? Why did you miss them? Learn from your mistakes. Do better next time. Yeah, 
I, I agree completely. The only thing I would add to that is if she is going to focus on numbers, I would probably focus on the number she gets wrong per section, not the overall score or the curve because that's going to change from test to test, but the number she got wrong in each section because uh, if she notices, for example, that she tends to get two to four wrong in reading comp and zero to two wrong in logical reasoning, then to me that would be a sign that maybe between tests she should be focusing more on reading comp to sort of maybe bring that number down. There's more of a potential there, it seems like, to improve than in logical reasoning where she's maybe getting zero wrong, sometimes two wrong. Of course, anytime she gets anything wrong, whatever section it is, exactly like you're saying, she should just focus on that, try to understand it, try to learn from it, and not worry too much about what that means in terms of her score, because the goal here is just to get more and more questions correct and then let the dice fall where they're going to fall. That's all you can do. Yeah, do do tests, make mistakes, learn from your mistakes. Try not to make those same mistakes anymore. General recipe for success. Yep. Let's see here. Um, I guess she does go into some more numbers. Oh, she's worried about timing. She says that she's able to easily correct almost all of her mistakes in blind review. In other words, before she grades her test, she goes back and reviews the ones yep. she wasn't sure about, and she's able to get them all right. And she's trying to figure out uh, how to translate that success into the timed conditions. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? It seems to me that she probably just needs to ignore the clock and slow down a little bit. I mean, if I hear that, I hear that a lot. I hear like, oh, well, I, I get it. It's just the timing. It's just the timing. It's just the timing. And it's like, well, okay, then why don't you just, if you, if you really can get them, then why, why, are, why don't you just like not look at your watch anymore and just focus on getting them right? I would be interested in knowing whether she finishes early or whether she runs out of time. Mm -hmm. um, because I would say if she's not running out of time, then maybe she probably should be. Because running out of time and missing one or two at the end is a lot better than, like, missing six. Yeah. Right? And she's yeah. doing that in reading comprehension. She's missing six and she's missing seven. And so my question is, are, you know, if you're finishing early and you're missing that many, well, then you shouldn't be finishing early. Yep. Or if you're finishing and you're missing that many, then you shouldn't be finishing. Mm -hmm. So as a general principle, I think slow down, ignore the clock, focus on accuracy, Get them all right. You don't get good LSAT scores by missing questions, right? You, you get good LSAT scores by getting everything right. That's right. The other thing to add to that is if uh, you go through, like let's say you're in reading comp and you go through the five answer choices and you come down to one and you really don't feel like it's the right answer and you're a strong test taker, in some ways I think that might be an indication to reread the answer choices because... It's something where when you go back under blind review and you're rereading the answer choices and you say, oh, it's B. But at the time, I think sometimes people get rid of A through D and they're left with E and they sort of try to make it work and they don't really feel comfortable with the answer, but there's a time pressure and so on. And they're not really letting themselves find an answer that they're comfortable with. You're, you're not always going to, but when you're scoring as high as she is, if you're not comfortable with your answer choice, it's it's like a subtle clue that you need to 
maybe reevaluate. Yeah, um, I, I think I have like a corollary to that. I've noticed I, it's, it's human nature. I mean, I even I do it uh, in class. I'm reading a question and I don't like A and I don't like B and I don't like C. And it's awful tempting to start rooting for D. Yeah. Or if I don't like D, then it's awful tempting to say like, oh, well, the answer must be E before I even read E. Mm -hmm. And that's really a pretty bad habit, I think. Yeah. Because I think you need to maintain skepticism all the way through all five answers. You should be pretty skeptical. And that means that it, I, I say it a lot that if you're if you don't occasionally eliminate all five answers, you're probably not being critical enough of the answer choices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So along with that, you, that means you need to maintain your skepticism all the way through all five answer choices because yeah, it might've been a, and you, you knocked it off because of, you know, you, you didn't like it for some reason, which is fine. But if you don't find something that you do like, then you need to reread all five probably. And, um, you know, double eliminate the ones that you really hate and then pick the best of a bad lot. Yeah. That's one place where slowing down a little bit can, yeah, can definitely make you, uh, way more accurate yeah. because I, I find people doing that a lot. I find people picking D and E um, almost like wishful thinking kind of. Mm -hmm. No, mm -hmm. I didn't like the earlier one. So it must be this one. Right. And then they, they're like rationalizing it to themselves. Like they're convincing themselves that E really is the answer. Yeah. But if E's shitty, then you need to go ahead and cross it out and go back up to the top. And maybe you'll on a second reading of A or B or C or whatever, you'll, you'll see that, oh, I, this one is actually not as bad as I thought. Or you might say, oh, this one sucks, but at least it's, you know, it doesn't suck as bad as all these other ones. It's still relevant to the conclusion or whatever. Yeah, right. It's like, oh, well, oh, I see how this one is at least, you know, it's it's a shitty, but it's not the shittiest. I mean, it's not as shitty as all these other ones. That That's really, that does happen quite a lot, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we find... There are times where we'll be able to predict exactly the answer and we'll, we will find the perfect answer. That happens a lot. But mm -hmm. it happens a lot that we don't find the perfect answer. Um, I would say frequently for like a strengthen question. You know, how, you know what I mean? How there's like a wide range of correct answers for, for strengthen questions. And sometimes you end up picking one that's like, how does this strengthen the argument? And it's like, well, the argument totally sucks. All five of these answer choices totally suck. But at least this one is providing some support for this shitty argument. Yeah. So that one's the answer. All, all it's got to do is make it a tad bit more likely that the conclusion is true. <laughs> as long as the other four answer choices don't do anything. Don't do anything. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I guess um, what we're trying to say is maintain an even keel as you go through the five answer choices. And yeah, you might sometimes end up knocking out all five and having to go back. But you've got to be patient enough to do that. And mm -hmm. if you're looking at the clock, then, you know, I don't know. I, that's It's a bit of like, I, would, I was going to say red flag, but it's not like it's a red flag. It's just when I hear people say, I have no problem when I go back and blind review my mistakes... I don't miss any, but I miss it. I miss them when it's timed. Then it's almost guaranteed to me that there's, you're thinking too much about the time you're trying to go too fast. You just need to slow down and focus on accuracy. Yeah, I agree. Okay, cool.
Cool. So the next one is from Dennis. And Dennis is the one who is retaking a class because he did very poorly on it, apparently, the first time. And he currently has a GPA of a, quote, high 3.4. I think that's actually at his newest school. So the deal here, and we'll just paraphrase. Yeah. But he attended two community colleges and got like a 2.8 and like a 2.7. He says, for no other reason than lack of effort. Okay. I mean, that happens. I got shitty grades in college, too, because of the exact same reason. Um, then he like sorted himself out, transferred, started getting better grades at his newest school. He's up to a, you know, he's got a 3.4 at his new, new school. Um, but he's retaking a class. It says, so there's two things. He's getting good grades this semester and he wants those grades to be reflected on his transcript before he applies. Mm-hmm. The second thing is he's retaking a class this semester and the old grade is currently dramatically weighing his GPA down. And so he really wants that retake to be on his transcript into his GPA before he applies. Yeah. So there's two different issues there. Then his question is, should I apply to schools as soon as my LSAT score is available and not take advantage of using this upcoming semester to raise my GPA? Or should I wait until the semester is finished to apply to schools so that I can report uh, these new better grades, including the retake? Yeah, so his GPA is going to go up because he did better this semester and because of the retake, right? Yes, and those are two different separate issues. Yeah, so he's saying he's thinking he's going to go from a 3.4 to a 3.6-ish. Yes. And so should he apply now with the 3.4 or apply later with the 3.6? Now, wait, one thing we should clarify here is we don't know if that's actually going to go up to a 3.6, right? Because when he retakes that test... You're, you were saying earlier that maybe that wouldn't affect yeah, his GPA as much? So I different schools uh, deal with this differently. Um, some schools, if you retake a class, they will only count your new grade, not your old grade, when they calculate your GPA. And I have a feeling that that's what's going on here with Dennis. Yeah. Because it looks like it's going to dramatically affect his GPA. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm guessing that he like failed the class, you know, sometimes people do that because they just like stop going or whatever, uh, you know, so you fail a class and it's going to kill your GPA. But then if you retake the class at some schools, they'll just say, oh no, you didn't fail the class. You got an A mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's how they calculate your GPA. Other schools are going to count both of those grades. Um, and I am not exactly sure what the LSAC does, but... As a general principle, the LSAC is going to tell you what your GPA is, and it's going to be different from what's reflected on your transcripts. And I think, I don't know this 100% for sure, we're going to have to ask uh, an admissions expert, but I believe that the LSAC counts all of your grades. Um, Yeah. Or they might even only count the first. I don't know. I, I actually don't know. But I do know that I have had people, anecdotally, I have had students say, I retook a class, and because when I retook the class, it 
raised my GPA, but the LSAC GPA did not similarly reflect that increase from retaking the class. Yes. So I hate to be the bearer of bad news for Dennis, and I'm not 100% sure, but I believe that Dennis's GPA is not going to go up as much as he thinks it is when the LSAC calculates it. That's right. So assuming he has a high 3.4 right now, 3.45 or whatever, and they do make that change, maybe he'll be applying, he could apply later with a 3.6 or so, or if they don't make that change, his GPA would probably go up, so maybe be like a 3.5. We're not talking about a huge difference, though, necessarily. I mean, 3.4, 3.5, 3.6, and the issue is, should he apply now with a 3.4, uh, after the October scores come out, or should he wait until the end of December when he gets his higher GPA from this semester and then apply with a 3.5 or maybe even a 3.6? Do you have any thoughts on that? So if we were just making up numbers, and if you had an option of applying now with a 3.4 or applying in or applying in uh, early November with a 3.4 mm-hmm. or applying in January with a 3.6. Yeah. To me, that seems like I would wait till January and apply with a 3.6. Okay. I know it's not a huge difference, but I don't think January is super late in the admission cycle these days. Mm-hmm. Um, Anne was in, Anne Levine was in my LSAT class last night and she was saying that a lot of schools, she's really trying to get people to get their applications in before Thanksgiving. Okay. So that would, you know, argue the other way that maybe you should apply now. Mm-hmm. But even though 3.4 to 3.6 doesn't seem like it's that much of a difference, um, I think if you played around with the like law school calculator thing, that that probably would make a pretty big difference for admissions. Yeah. I don't know. It's all guessing at this point, don't you think? Yeah, it is. I, I wonder though, I mean, another option might be to apply now and... I don't know how this would come off, but send an addendum explaining that you anticipate your GPA to go up because of a hard-fought semester, and you hope that they take that into consideration. I mean, it would be a soft factor, but they might, you know, depending on if they're on the fence or something, they appreciate the fact that you've applied proactively and early, and then they're aware of the fact that there may be something about your application that they should take into account if they're well, kind of yeah. holding off on you. I mean, Dennis is for sure going to want to submit an addendum explaining the grades, right? Mm-hmm. You don't mm-hmm. When you have a 2.8 and then a 2.7 at your first two schools, and then you have dramatically higher grades at your final school, that's yes, totally to worth... That. Well, yeah, I mean, it, you, you, you've have an opportunity to make that case of like, Hey, I, you know, something changed and my GPA for the last year is, or last two years is way more reflective of my, of course, is way more reflective of my actual academic ability than these first, you know, two years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so he is going to be submitting an addendum for sure. And in that addendum, yeah, it would be pretty easy to throw in one sentence about how, my grades are rising and will continue to rise. Yeah. Then, of course, you have to follow through on that. <laughs> That's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think maybe either way is going to be okay for Dennis. Uh, of course, the really big factor for Dennis with you know relatively poor grades, the really big factor is going to be the LSAT score. 
Um, they're just not going to care about his grades or his addendum unless he gets an LSAT score that really like you know makes them take a closer look. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I maybe would just wait and see if the LSAT is where it needs to be. If the LSAT is where it needs to be, um, then maybe you go ahead and apply in November. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, if he, depending on how he does in the October LSAT, that could totally change the equation, especially if he decides to retake it. Yeah. I, I would say, you know, don't probably do much for your applications generally. Anne was talking about this in class last night. Uh, if you're taking the October LSAT or if you're taking the December LSAT even, you really don't need to be doing much for your applications other than the things that are out of your hands because those those take time. So transcript requests and personal uh, letters of recommendation. Transcript mm-hmm. requests and letters of recommendation. You need to get those balls rolling because it's on other people not on you and you need to give them as much lead time as you possibly can but once you've sent those requests then you need to buckle down and focus on the LSAT until the LSAT is over yeah because you can write your personal statement in the three weeks where you're waiting for your LSAT score to come back yep nothing at that point the LSAT's out of your hands so you might as well turn your focus to something else right yeah but the I, I just were we talking about this last time? I'm amazed at so. how much time people spend on their personal statement when they still don't have their LSAT done. Yeah, in a lot of cases, it's probably just a form of procrastination. procrastination. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And they also do a lot of obsessing about, like, what schools should I apply to when they don't have their LSAT score back? Yes. And that's similarly ridiculous because if your LSAT score goes up by six points, then you're, like, looking at a whole different range of schools. <laughs> So, sorry folks, I know you'd rather do those other things, you know, I know you'd rather clean your apartment than do your homework, but uh, you got to do your homework. So, the, the LSAT's really the thing, and if you're, if you're still not, if you still haven't taken the LSAT, um, that really should be your primary focus. Yeah, by the way, so one side tip here that's kind of random, but um, if you, this goes along with what you were saying the other week about going to the gym, just show up to the gym. Yeah. I would say for a lot of people who work, especially uh, if you get home and you have roommates or other distractions, even if you just live by yourself, there can be a lot of things to do at home that have nothing to do with the LSAT. So one thing I've started telling people is you get home from, you finish work and you just go, maybe you have to get something to eat, but then right after that, you go straight to the library or something like that. And just by showing up and turning off your phone, there's nothing to do but LSAT. And so you do it right then and there. And when you leave at 8 or whatever it is that you leave, you've done it for the night. So it doesn't matter what comes up when you get home. you got to take care of laundry. you got to take care of email, people, whatever. It's You've taken care of the most important thing that's on your plate right now. At least I would be assume it's one of the, one of the more important things. And you don't have to worry about it. You've checked it off for the night. Yeah, um, I had a similar thing. A, a tutoring student of mine was talking about how she's been um, studying in her office at work. Okay. And then she's like, and the partners just keep coming in and interrupting me. And I, <laughs> I feel really bad. It's my lunch. I'm doing it on my lunch, but the partners still keep coming in. And I've thought about putting a sign on the door that says, you know, studying, do not disturb. But then I don't feel like I can do that because whatever. And it's like, okay, well then... I hate to break it to you, but you can't, you, you got to stop studying at your office. I'm sorry. 
you know? And right. When people have roommates and family and pets and all that shit at home, or if you've got friends and colleagues and bosses at work, why you got to go somewhere else. You got to, you got to carve out this time for yourself, right? You're making an investment in your future. Mm -hmm. And I do think you got to just go get to, you got to go, I don't know, library, Starbucks, hotel lobbies. Um, there's lots of places where people aren't going to bother you. Yeah. Where people don't know you and your phone is off. And, and you your have phone to... needs to be off. Yes. Yeah. I That's mean, true. yeah, put it in airplane mode, right? Because a lot of people use their phone for a timer. Mm-hmm. Sure. So that's fine. But put it in airplane mode. Close your laptop. Go somewhere where you're anonymous. If you need to put on the big, you know, Dr. Dre beats headphones to give everybody the the signal not to talk to you, that's fine. Um, if you're super attractive and like people will keep hitting on you all the time when you're at the Starbucks, you know, you could put up, put, put the big beats on, maybe a hood. I don't know. But like, <clears throat> or yeah, library or whatever. But you got to, it's, it's a, because quality matters, right? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people do a lot of low quality hours. Mm-hmm. And I would rather you, instead of giving me 10 low quality hours, I would rather have five high quality hours. Yeah. Where you're like really doing it. Especially when you're doing timed sections, which you should be doing all the time, right? Mm-hmm. It should be part of your daily practice, really, to do a time, you know, one section a day and review. We've talked about this a lot. One section a day and review. You can make a lot of progress. But if you're doing that timed section and you're getting interrupted while you're doing it, that really does defeat the purpose. Mm-hmm. You're also training yourself to be unsuccessful if you do that. Right? You're training yourself to not be focused while you're doing the 35-minute section. Because every day that you do the 35-minute section, you keep getting interrupted and you're not focused. Yeah, and I feel like also when you don't do as well, there's always this excuse and you just don't know how much of that was due to your lack of focus, your tiredness, whatever, and how much of it was due to the fact that you aren't approaching the questions correctly or not uh, fully understanding whatever you're reading or whatever. Yeah. We aren't asking for that many hours, really. I, I, you know, I'd be, I'm pretty happy with one hour a day. One hour a day for three months, you can make a big dent in the LSAT. But yeah. that hour needs to be a really good hour. So you got to tell your friends, family, roommates, bosses, pets. You got to basically tell them to fuck off for that one hour a day. And maybe mm-hmm. you don't have to actually tell them to fuck off. But you go somewhere where they can't reach you <laughs> for that one hour a day. And it's just like, listen, I'm sorry. I'm taking care of some shit. Yeah. Well, it's, and, and this is why I think turning off the phone is so important. It's amazing to me how people can break their backs to get to a meeting or something and then they get home and they have uh, this let's say that hour that meeting was an hour long and they didn't let anyone interrupt them they you know ran to the bus they got on the bus they got to the meeting on time or whatever it is they had to do for work and then they get home and they have two three four hours until they're going to sleep and they don't use any of it because it's like they're responding to emails they get sucked into things that then they feel like they have to respond to right then or deal with right then. Whereas if you just left, you'd have, you really don't want to have any awareness of it. Um, Cause as soon as you have awareness of any issue, 
then even if you exercise the willpower, which is not easy, but you exercise the willpower to ignore that issue, it's in the back of your mind. Yeah. You want to be totally unaware of these things. So I would say as soon as you leave work, don't check your email. Just go eat and then go do this thing. It's better to be ignorant and then say, oh, sorry, I was studying. I didn't know there was this problem. But your studying's now done, and usually the world is fine. Yeah, multitasking doesn't work. You know, people think they can do three things at once, but they really can't. And I see people in class doing it. We'll be doing a timed section in class, or I'll be explaining a logic game or something, and I'll look out and I'll see that somebody has like gotten a text message and now they're responding to it. And it's just sort of like, I mean, I don't care. It doesn't, I'm not offended, yeah, but, yeah. but it's like, well, now wait a minute. What are we doing here? Are we, are we working on the LSAT or are we fucking around with our friends and work and whatever else? Because mm-hmm. you can't really do both very well. Um, and, you know, I get it. I teach four hour LSAT classes and that's an awful long time to be like off the com. Mm-hmm. But for one hour in your, your typical study routine, that one hour, um, I think you do need to shut everything down and really focus because you need to practice focusing. You need mm-hmm. to practice being focused. Yeah. You need to practice being successful. How are you going to be successful on the test if you don't have a lot of success already under your belt during your practice sessions? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, June 2007. Should we jump into Yeah, that? this is cool. It's been a long time since we've done this, but um, I would like to do more of it because it's fun. <laughs> yeah, it is fun. So we have the June 2007 LSAT. Section one is the logic game section, so we're going to skip on to the next section, which is section two. We've already talked about questions one through four on previous podcast episodes. I have no idea which ones they are, but... <laughs> no. We can try to list those maybe, or someone can figure that out and list them in the Yeah, super notes. fan. Some super fan needs to tell us where those are. <laughs> yes, <thank laughs> do we have any? I don't know. Yeah, do we have any super fans? All three of them, or one, or none, <laughs> please. Um, so we're on question five uh, in logical reasoning section two. So let me just go ahead and read this, and this is how I would read it if I were reading it for the first time. And it's like I'm reading it for the first time because I have not seen this test really in a long time um let's see here so question five says scientist earth's average annual temperature has increased about 0.5 degrees celsius over the last century okay um honestly this is what i think right now i'd be that's unsurprising global warming yeah then it says this warming is primarily the result of the buildup of minor gases in the atmosphere again i'm thinking to myself no shit. Okay, yeah, we all know this. Yeah. Blocking the outward flow of heat from the planet. Wow. Okay, so this is not new information. Then it says, which one of the following... Now, I I don't really see a conclusion here. Right, and I would notice that, right? I would... Yeah. I, because I'm always looking for, like, what's your evidence? What's your conclusion? These, This is just fun facts about global warming. The Fun first facts sentence, about global warming that yeah makes sense that seem to confirm reality, right? Yeah, so the first sentence is a su- fact. The second sentence is a fact. Neither of them were surprising. I'm not skeptical about this at all. I was trying to be skeptical, but I'm not skeptical. So that's yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and it's a point to, to, to say why we're saying this, at least for me, I think you probably agree, but tell me what you think. But 
uh, a lot of times the LSAT says things that are surprising, not just in conclusions, but even in premises. And I just like to react to them and have my thoughts like, wow, that's weird. Why would someone, you know, totally stu study 300 hours for the LSAT? Or I was doing like a question um, last night in class. I was doing a question. I did the uh, June 2015 test last night in class, okay. which is mm -hmm. awesome for me. I don't know if you have the same reaction, but I had never uh, taught my way through, like, for example, I had never taught my way through all four of the logic games okay. mm -hmm. from that test because it's a brand new test. Yes, and it, I enjoy that because it's like I get to go out on the high wire and just like do it mm -hmm. um, without having seen it before, without having taught it a million times. So that was pretty fun. By the way, um, I did not find the June 2015 logic games to be particularly difficult. Um, there was a little twist in that very first game, but it was a very little twist, and uh, it turns out to be really pretty manageable. I think if you just cool. like keep your wits about you. I don't know if you've yeah looked at that very closely no well actually i took the whole test oh okay um i sat down and took it and i don't remember anything about the games so, oh, that's probably, so they were unremarkable yeah probably so yeah um um but the yeah. sorry that was a um tangent uh the i was specifically um remembering one of the logical reasoning questions Mm -hmm. where a university administrator of some sort was talking about how he has uh, teaching assistants. And the teaching assistants wanted uh, benefits. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about the situation, and he's trying to make the case that the teaching assistants do not deserve benefits. That's his okay. conclusion. Mm -hmm. But one of the premises that he presented was the only reason why we are doing this is so that these teaching assistants can fund their graduate educations. Okay. And it was presented as a premise of the argument. Yeah. But when a university administrator says the only reason we're doing this is so that the graduate students can fund their education, that surprised me yeah right that was presented as a fact but it was a very surprising fact mm -hmm. and it was a fact that i wanted to sort of push back on a little bit like wait really mr university administrator man the only reason why you're doing this is out of the goodness of your heart you're doing this for the benefit of the graduate students that's why you're having graduate students teach all of your classes yeah it's for their benefit only really yeah yeah. And as it turned out, the correct answer was related to that bit of spe of skepticism. It was like, how do we weaken this argument? And it was something like, well, there are other – like um, the university saves a lot of money by having the graduate students teach the classes. Yeah, that's really interesting. So one thing we should point out here is that it sounds like – so anything that I read that's surprising, whether it's a premise or a conclusion, I take note of it and just think to myself, oh, it's mainly for me at least just to become aware of what's being said, like right. have a fluency with it. But I think here it might almost sound like – and I, I can't remember that question, but um, it almost sounds like what you're suggesting is – you're attacking the premise, but not really, right? Because the premise was just that he said that. It's right. not that that's actually true. Right. And that's the, a little different. Right. Yeah, I, I was not... Yes, this was the university administrator's argument. And he. I think that there were things in the argument that we had to accept as fact, you know, like that the graduate students were asking for benefits. 
Yeah, but and that he said this, and that he said that he said he did make this statement. But yeah, I mean, I'm allowed to push back. I'm allowed to say, now wait a minute, really? Wait, what? Mm-hmm. So anyway, general skepticism is always good. Back to this number five on the section two of June two thousand seven. This scientist has said two completely unsurprising things. Mm-hmm. So I don't have that skepticism right now. Neither do I. Okay. Bottom line, the temperature, annual temperature average has gone up over the last century. And the second sentence is this is primarily the result of minor gases, which block the outward flow of heat from the planet. So I, there is cause and effect there. But that's, yes. ca- that's not cause and effect in a conclusion. That's cause and effect in a premise. Mm-hmm. So we're going to accept that as a fact that the reason why the Earth's temperature has gone up by half a degree is primarily, not only, but primarily because of this buildup of minor gases that block the flow of heat from the planet. That's right. Okay. Now the question says, which one of the following, if true, would count as evidence against the scientist's explanation of the Earth's warming? So... I would identify this as a weakened question because yep. we're being asked to count, look for something that would count as evidence against the explanation. So we're trying to weaken the explanation. Yep. And what this is doing is effectively turning that explanation into some sort of, it's it's not a conclusion, but it's it's a claim that we're being asked to weaken. So you could think of it as a conclusion, but it wasn't technically a conclusion in the original argument. Right. It did, yeah, it didn't strike me as a conclusion. I thought it was a premise. But now it's like, well, okay, we're asked to weaken this idea that the warming is primarily because of this buildup of minor gases. Mm-hmm. That's a cause and effect premise. Yep. If I'm going to weaken that premise, I have two standard attacks that I'd like to teach people. Well, one of them is reversal of cause and effect, and the other one is alternate cause. Anytime I see cause and effect, I think, what about reversal, and what about some alternate cause? Yes. So before looking at the answer choices here, I would just sort of, you know, I think it's good to notice that we're attacking a cause and effect argument. Claim. Mm-hmm. Or a cause and effect claim. We're going to try mm-hmm. to attack that. How do I attack a cause and effect claim? Reversal is good when it makes sense. Reversal is good. So something like a buildup in heat causes a buildup in minor gases. Sure. Because it's strange, but that, yeah, yeah, that maybe doesn't make that much sense. But although you know, if it were true, yeah, that any time the Earth's temperature goes up, then it also builds up minor gases after that. Then yeah. maybe that casts some doubt on the idea that minor gases are causing the temperature to increase. Exactly. Reversal of cause and effect when it works can be a really powerful attack. I would kind of look at that for a second. And then I would think about alternate causes. Alternate causes, I don't know if I need to even, well, it could be aliens, right? I like to think about that. Um, The Martians is always a good alternate cause. So now this would never be the answer. But if there were an answer that said something like uh, aliens from Mars are shooting ray guns at the Earth, and that is causing both the increase in temperature and the buildup of minor gases. Mm-hmm. That is not going to be the answer. <laughs> but if it were listed as the as an answer, it would absolutely be the answer. Mm-hmm. Because if that were true, if there were some other cause, the Martians or some other thing, if there were the Martians that were shooting ray guns and causing both of these things to happen, then that would make it 
look doubtful that the buildup of minor gases is what's causing the temperature increase. It's like, oh, no, no, they're both effects of this other cause. Yep. So those are my stu two standard attacks, and I don't know if they're going to be like that effective for this exact question, but that's kind of what I do on a cause and effect uh, question if I'm, if I'm trying to think about ways to attack it. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Okay. Um, okay, so which one following if true would count as evidence against this explanation? A, only some of the minor gases whose presence in the atmosphere allegedly resulted in the phenomenon described by the scientists were produced by industrial pollution. Okay, that's really wordy, but recapping it really short, it's basically only some of these gases were produced by industrial pollution. The rest were produced by something else. Does okay. this matter? Who gives a shit? We don't care how the gases came into the atmosphere. As long as they're holding in the heat, they're holding in the heat. Yeah, the argument is the gases are causing the heat. What caused the gases is completely... I mean, I, I don't see how that... And unless it, this was an alternate cause like the, like the ray gun one that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. Where it was like, well, actually, the ray gun causes the heat and the gases. This one is just saying, here's where the gases came from. Some of the gases. Here's where only some of the gases came I don't know. To be honest, that first, the beginning of that answer, only some of the minor gases, I would almost be tuning out after I read that first, those first few words. Sure. It's like, how does that, how, how, how is that going to turn into the right answer? I don't know. It just seems unlikely. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's inherently weak, right? This is a weakened question. Yeah. And for weakened questions, we're looking to change the argument. If we're going to change the argument, we're looking for kind of powerful answers. Mm -hmm. And if you start off with only some of the minor gases, that's a really, really weak statement. It is. Although I guess... I mean, only is a strong word, and so if we're saying only some of the minor gases contribute, maybe that could have something to have some sort of impact, like most of the gases aren't doing anything, but even then, it's still like the gases are contributing. So Yeah, and it's I also, just feel like the conclusion was the buildup of minor gases is, or the whatever the statement is, the, the buildup of minor gases is causing this temperature increase. A starts talking about the individual gases. Mm-hmm. I don't care about the individual gases. I care about the whole bunch of gases. Yep. I agree. Right? If the answer said something like, some of these minor gases definitely have no effect, mm -hmm. that would still not do anything. Yeah. Or if it said, some of the minor gases actually reduce Earth's temperature, that would still have, like, no effect. Because some just means one or more, and if there was one gas that makes the temperature go down, the gas says on the whole, could still make the temperature go up. Sure. So that I don't see how that's doing anything. Anyway. Yeah. Um, I'm feeling pressed for time, though, so let's go ahead and circle A and go on to the next one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. I've, been sp I've spent more than 85 seconds on this question now, and I know that I can't spend more than 85 seconds per question, so I just have to pick one now and move on. <laughs> no, let's, uh, let's stay here and get it right. I'm pretty sure we can do it. Okay, so B says, most of the warming occurred before 1940, while most of the buildup of minor gases in the atmosphere occurred after 1940. Mm. Uh, this sounds pretty good, actually. Um, yeah, how come? Well, in my mind, what it's doing is it's separating 
the two events. So it sounded like they were correlated. You had the temp average temperature was increasing and you had the minor gases increasing or a buildup of minor gases in the atmosphere. These two things are happening at the same time. So it kind of makes sense that one of them, the minor gases, is causing the increase in temperature. But if the temperature increase occurred before 1940 and the gases increased after 1940, how the heck did the world get warmer before 1940 if there weren't the buildup of gases? It doesn't start to make Sounds yeah, like. B would be a pretty bad fact for the scientists. If you're trying to say A causes B, the fact that B happened before A is going to be a problem. Yeah, so in a causal argument, the most common way to weaken it is to say, hey, look, these causal relationships have been reversed, like you were saying, or there's an alternative cause. But occasionally they do this as well, which is where they say, nope, you know what, the correlation doesn't even exist. And that was, that's a serious problem. I'm not saying this doesn't say the correlation doesn't exist at all, but it's definitely putting a huge crack in it. Yeah, well, the correlation exists if you look at the last century, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But if you look at it a little cl more closely, then you'll see that actually the bulk of the warming occurred first and the bulk of the gases building up happened after that. So then it makes it look a little silly to say how that the gases caused the warming. Yeah. It would actually make more sense the other way around, that the warming caused the gases if the warming happened first, right? Yeah. Um, so we're like in B. Now, yeah. do we just pick B and move on or what? Well, no, I wouldn't. I would have A crossed out. I'd have B open. I'd have a strong affinity towards B. So I'd be really primed to get yeah. rid of C, D, and E. I'm assuming same for you. I don't make any mark, by the way. I've seen people like make a little dash next to B, like, ooh, this is a good one. Mm, I don't no, do that. I don't do that either. All I do is eliminate the wrong answers and circle the right one. I do the same. I've okay. seen some complicated systems too, like a squiggle is more likely than not. <laughs> Hieroglyphics. <laughs> no offense to those people who do that, but I, yeah, I feel like it's too complicated. I'm generally in the business of eliminating wrong answers. And so my approach here would be, I mean, I think if you looked at my page after I was done with this, you would see a slash through A, and then we haven't done C, D, and E yet, but I like B a lot, so I'm guessing that we're going to eliminate C, D, and E. And I think all you would see is a slash through A, a slash through C, a slash through D, a slash through E, and then a circle on B. I that's think right. that's what would be on my page. And then you, do you bubble after you've done two pages? That's what I do. After each spread, yeah. Before I turn the page, Yes. then I would bubble in my bubble sheet. The only time that I would deviate from that is after the five-minute warning has been called. Uh, yeah. At the five-minute warning, I'm going to bubble in guesses for the remainder of my section, and then calmly continue answering the questions from there on out. That means I don't ever have to look at my watch. Mm. Because I, what I find is people spend a lot of time, especially in the last five minutes, going back and forth, looking at their watch, looking at their test, looking at their watch, looking at their test. That's why I recommend this easy strategy of just Proctor says five minutes, you bubble in guesses for the rest of the section. Then mm. for the remainder of the five minutes, I probably would Every question that I answered, I would bubble in the bubble. And yeah, I might have to erase and bubble in a new bubble. But this is just a, you know, it's a foolproof way of making sure that you've got all your bubbles bubbled in before the, when time is called. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's, okay. get, let's get rid of C, D, and E C here. Sure. So C says, over the last century, Earth received slightly more solar radiation in certain years than it did in others. Um. Okay, so I think this might sound tempting on the surface because it's saying, oh, there's more solar radiation. Maybe it's like that's an alternate causing. cause, yeah. Yeah, 
But really what it's just saying is that there was more solar radiation in some years than there were in other years. So the average amount of solar radiation could actually be the same that it's always been since the beginning of the century, since the beginning of time. Well, it could we be, know. or it could be dramatically less. Or it could be dramatically less. It doesn't actually dramatically say how much. You know, less solar radiation over the past century and still have gotten slightly more solar radiation in certain years. Um, if C were to say over the last century, Earth has received dramatically more solar radiation. Yes, especially over time, over that, over over, that this, over this last century. Mm -hmm. If in the last century, Earth has received dramatically more solar radiation than it did previously, that would be a better answer. Yeah. That's just not what C says. So I think we're eliminating C. Yep. Okay. D, volcanic dust and other particles in the atmosphere reflect much of the sun's radiation back into space before it can reach Earth's surface. Ooh, what does this do? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing, or maybe even strengthen it a little bit because it's saying that these things are getting rid of heat or preventing heat from coming in. Thus, it must be something else that's making the world warmer, possibly these minor gases. Am I reading too much into that? No, I, okay. Yeah, I guess I could see it as a strengthener. Um, either strengthener or irrelevant, but mm -hmm. certainly not a weakener. Definitely not a weakener. So this is yeah. out. E, the accumulation of minor gases in the atmosphere has been greater over the last century than at any other time in Earth's history. I mean, that also could be a strengthener. Okay, why do you say that? Because Earth's temperature has gone up over the last century, and we're trying to conclude that it's because of the minor gases. If E says the accumulation of minor gases has been greater over the last century than any time previously, then it's like, oh, well, there is a buildup of minor gases. And you're trying to say that the buildup of minor gases is what caused this temperature increase. So That's right. E so does seem like it helps the argument. It reinforces the correlation, right? Yes. So, yeah. Perfect. So we pick B, and now check our phones. <laughs> yeah, totally. Look at the watch and do some math about how much time you have left. And yeah, make some notes. Yeah, and, good. And do some calculations about, oh, I, you know, I'm running a little bit behind. I need to do the next question in 82 seconds instead of 85 seconds. Um, yeah, no. We need to be ignoring the time for the most part, and we need to just be calmly going on to the next one and answering it correctly. Although someone next to us just turned the page, so we should probably turn the page. <laughs> yeah. I've talked about the my little move that I do, right, in the beginning of the test? No. What do you do? Well, I've always done this because I'm a cocky bastard, but I did it on the SAT, which was, and I did, I did it also on the LSAT. The proctor says go, and everyone frantically tears into their test booklet. And when the proctor says go, I do not go. Okay. Instead, I sit there for a minute, not a minute, but a few seconds, and look around the room and watch all the other frantic people fucking up. And just, just watch how crazy they are and how they're, you know, it's like, I'm looked to the person on my left and it's like, oh, you've already answered question number one. We've only been doing this for 15 seconds and you're already answering question number one. Well, <laughs> good job, but you missed that one. You know, yeah. I mean, nice job on the speed, but accuracy is far more important. And then, you know, you look to the person on your right and you see that they're paging through all the different pages trying to pick out which game to do first. 
at frantically. Mm -hmm. And it's like, um, you know, you can't really tell which ones are hard just by glancing at it. And uh, also the first game is almost always the easiest one. Um, so you're wasting time by doing that. And yeah. it, it's, it's like, I mean, I'm not telling people that they should actually do this, but I try to send myself the message that like I got this and mm -hmm. that if I just kind of calmly and carefully go through and answer the questions that it's all going to be fine. And one way to do that is to just not like frantically tear into question number one. Yeah. If I see people bubbling in bubbles or if I see people, you know, oh, we're already on the next page. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's nice. Um, my attitude is sort of like, tell you what, you go as fast as you want. You can miss all the questions. That's great. I will see you at the finish line. And when we get to the finish line, I'm going to have gotten basically all of them right. And if I run out of time and I don't finish the last one, that's cool because I'll have 24 in a row correct. And it's my test. I, I manage the time. I'm not worried about the time because I, I know that I can get these right. So anyway, that's, I think that's far more appropriate than the like worrying about how fast the people are going to your left and right. Yeah. And of course they're probably taking a different section because, uh, the sections are different. They absolutely um, could be taking a different section and they also could be the least prepared person in the room. I mean, this is a classic one, right? But if on the first night of class, you administer a practice test, right? I administer mm -hmm. a practice test on the first yep. night of class, uh, Every once in a while, there will be someone who finishes section one in 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. That person never, ever, ever does good. Does well. Yep. Excuse me. I'm trying to not stop saying that. Does good. <laughs> God, I have a bad education. Does well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you finish the section in 20 minutes, guaranteed you did shitty. Yep. So, uh, and I see this all the time in complete novices. So when you're in the test, then if you actually remember, there are a lot of people who sit for the LSAT completely unprepared. So if you're in the LSAT and someone in the room is like, you can tell that they're way outpacing you, mm -hmm. just go ahead and assume that that means that they're fucking up. Yeah. That's a pretty safe assumption. Dude, no, I think this is actually really good. I think it, everyone should implement this strategy, of, even if you don't finish the sections, um, of just starting on your own timetable um obviously you don't take a minute but i think even just 10 seconds just to get the right mindset because mindset is huge totally. sometimes i've told people you know you start reading the passage in reading comp and it's about something that your initial gut reaction is oh this is going to be super boring and i say just stop take a deep breath and say okay what can i learn about you know mid-century medieval candle making, I don't know, whatever. Um, just merely having a different mindset as you go into that passage, I think can make all the difference in how you absorb that information, how you deal with that information, and how you do on that passage. Yeah. Versus just rushing and trying to hurry, 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 and if I don't hurry, um, it's over. Yeah. And You know, lawyers don't hurry, right? Be a lawyer. I, I like to tell people, I was saying this to my class last night, one way to think about the lawyer's role is like, you're essentially the smartest person in the room, okay? And when you're the smartest person in the room, when people are jabbering at you with like 
what about this and what about this and blah, blah, blah. You know, they're, they're going crazy, right? You've got a frantic client sitting in front of you and they're going crazy with telling you all the facts and conclusions and facts and conclusions. And we got to sue them and we got to do this. We got to do that. You're the smartest person in the room and your job as the smartest person in the room is basically to put the brakes on and say, hold on a second. Can we just, can I, I I'm, I'm having a little bit of trouble following and you're not afraid to say that because you're the smartest person in the room. Yeah. So you say, you know, I'm having a little bit of trouble following your argument here. Can I restate that for you? Can I rearrange that for you? Can I get, feed that back to you and see if I'm understanding you properly? That is a very lawyerly thing to do. Yeah. And that's really what it takes on the LSAT because especially on the logical reasoning, I mean, it's going to be bad argument after bad argument after bad argument. And your job is to understand these arguments. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to push it on speed and you're just, well, like, I, I don't have the time to stop and understand this. I have to get through this. Well, then you're absolutely just not doing your job. Yeah. Cool. That's a great analogy. Should we do one more or should we wrap it up? Um, I'm game. Okay. I got time for one more. Okay. So six. Uh, this is section two of the June 2007 LSAT. Uh, there's no one talking here. It just jumps right into the argument. And it says, an undergraduate degree is necessary for appointment to the executive board. Now, I would stop right there because necessary is a very strong word. It means you absolutely have to have it. So in other words, if you want to get on that board, the executive board, or if you want to be appointed, you have to have an undergraduate degree. So that means that if I have an undergraduate degree, then I'm on the board, right? <laughs> Guaranteed. No. So yeah, why not? Um, because necessary conditions don't really prove anything. It would be the absence of a necessary condition that would prove something. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm on the board, then I know I have an undergraduate degree. That's what the premise is, right? If yep. you're on the executive board, then I know you have an undergraduate degree. The mm -hmm. contrapositive of that statement, if you don't have an undergraduate degree, then you can't be on the executive board. Great. Okay. Then it says, further, no one with a felony conviction can be appointed to the board. Um, okay, so there's two thoughts that I have. The first one is the word further, which means and. So okay. to me, I look at the word further and and. This is a, a lower priority, but just something to be aware of as a premise indicator. So what it tells me is we just read a fact and we're now be, being given another fact. Usually these facts, or not usually, but when they're connected with the word further or moreover or and, it means that you're looking at two premises. At least that okay. tends to be the case. So, and that's not surprising. It didn't sound like a conclusion initially. It sounded like a statement of fact. This next one sounds like it's also giving us another requirement. No one with a felony conviction can be appointed to the board. In other words, you can't have a felony con conviction if you want to get on this board. Yeah, so the again, to just boil it down to an if-then statement, if you have a felony conviction, then you're not on the board. Contrapositive, mm -hmm. if you're on the board, or if you are appointed to the board. I suppose you could be appointed to the board, then get a felony conviction. But if you uh, have, if you are, when you are appointed to the board, then I know. If you are being appointed to the board, then I know that you cannot have a felony conviction. Yep. So two things then, if you're on the board or if you're getting appointed to the board, you have to have an undergraduate degree, and you cannot have a felony conviction. Yep. Okay. Perfect. Then it says, thus, 
which sounds like we know for sure this is going to be a conclusion. We don't know whether it's the main conclusion or not, but we know it's going to be a conclusion. Thus, Murray, an accountant with both a bachelor's and a master's degree, cannot be accepted for the position of executive administrator since he has a felony conviction. There's a conclusion there and a premise, huh? Right. Actually, there's a couple premises and and a conclusion. Okay, yes. So the first, yeah, we have this, thus Murray, comma, an accountant with both a bachelor's and a master's degree. That's a premise telling us about Murray. Yeah. Cannot be accepted for the position of executive administrator. That's the conclusion. Can't be accepted for the position of executive administrator since, premise, he has a felony conviction. Now, this premise actually does tie into the... Second premise, which no one with a felony conviction can be appointed to the board, but there is a serious problem here with the conclusion. Yeah, what would you say? Well, this is one of those classic uh, LSAT. I've heard people refer to this as a shell game. Okay. Which I kind of like that metaphor here. Sure. Where, you know, it's a sleight of hand, right? They're, they start off talking about appointment to the board and you understand these rules and, oh yeah, if you have a felony, then you can't be appointed to the board and... This guy Murray, you know, he's got a bachelor's degree, which is necessary for getting on the board, but uh, he also has a felony conviction, and if you have a felony conviction, then you can't be on the board. Therefore, and see, they they like hid the conclusion up inside of those premises as it kind of helps to obfuscate what they're doing, right? But thus, Murray, because he has a felony conviction, and if you have a felony conviction, you can't be on the board, Therefore, Murray can't be accepted for the position of executive administrator. Right. Wait, what? Yeah. And there, it's it's like, if you didn't catch it, you're in trouble. The question stem here actually gives you a chance to save yourself, right? Because mm-hmm. the worst thing you could do here is not catch what happened there. They did a sleight of hand. They did a magic trick. They just took your watch and you know, you didn't notice it. If you just go straight into the answer choices, like, oh, what? I'm going to try to figure this out. The the answer choices aren't going to help you figure it out. Not usually. Mm -mm. The question stem gives you a chance, though. Yeah. So the question stem says the argument's conclusion follows logically if which one of the following is assumed, which is a sufficient assumption question. Yeah, the uh, word if there is a big, big tip, right? Yeah, the word if is a big tip, and also the language follows logically, which means must be true. So the argument's conclusion must be true. It must follow if which one of the following is assumed. It's a sufficient assumption question. And on a sufficient assumption question, it's very specific. They're telling you one more premise. If you add one more premise to the existing premises, Mm -hmm. it will prove the conclusion of the argument. Yep. And that means that the argument has not yet been proven. Mm-hmm. Right? It because I think if you if you uh if their sleight of hand fooled you, then you would breeze right through this and you would think, "Oh, well, the, it's already been proven." Yeah, I mean, Murray can't be on the board. Or sorry, Murray can't get the position of executive administrator because he has a felony, and if you have a felony, you can't be on the board. Mhm. But there's a missing piece there. You might have caught it when you read the argument. If not, you read this question stem and it says, oh, shit, it's a sufficient assumption question. Oh, sufficient assumption questions are highly predictable. 
I should be able to tell them what the missing piece is. Oh, there must be a missing piece. I better go back and reread the argument and figure out what that missing piece is. Yep. And at that so, point, I think we could probably predict it, right? Yeah, and, and, and even on very hard uh, sufficient assumption questions, I would take the time to force myself to predict that answer. Here, uh, w whether you call it a shell game or, or whatever, I think one just general takeaway is that anytime the main conclusion introduces an idea that was never discussed in the premises, that's a potential problem. It's not always a problem if maybe they're using different wording that could still mean the same thing as what they said in the premises, but anytime they say something in the conclusion that's new, zero in on that and see if that's a problem. So here, the new thing, of course, is cannot be accepted for the position of executive administrator. We never talked about that at all, so we have to make some assumptions about what that position entails. And what would you predict here? Well, the premise was about you can't have a felony conviction and be on the board. Mm -hmm. And the conclusion here is therefore Murray can't be executive administrator. Yeah. And so the, the shell game or the sleight of hand as I, as I see it is, Hey, listen, you started off talking about the board and then now you went to this executive administrator thing and is the executive administrator on the board or not? Yeah. Uh, you never had a premise that said executive administrator is part of the board. Mm -hmm. But that's what they're looking for you to do, right? They're looking for you to just conflate those two things and not understand that the executive administrator doesn't exactly have to be on the board. And noticing that, then noticing that it's a sufficient assumption question, you can figure out what the answer is going to say. Sometimes frighteningly accurately, you can just tell exactly what the answer choice is going to say. Other times... Having made that prediction, you can go find an answer choice that has the same effect as the answer that you would say. Yeah. But the answer that I would be looking for here is very specific. The executive administrator is a board position. Yes. That would clearly prove this argument to be correct. Good. Now, okay. one other thing is I would say because the word executive or the phrase executive administrator is in the conclusion, I know it's got to be in the answer choice because it it wasn't anywhere else in the premises, so it has to be raised. Otherwise, well, that element yeah. will be left out. Correct. I would say that exact same thing. If there's a new idea, especially on a sufficient assumption question, if there's a new idea that was only mentioned in the conclusion and not mentioned anywhere else, there's no way to prove that conclusion unless that, uh, unless that new idea is mentioned in, and usually specifically in the correct answer. However, there is another way around that. Um, you know, a premise like, Every position. every position in the world is on the board. Yeah, yeah. You know, or every position that Murray is being considered for is on the board. Mm -hmm. Right? There it wouldn't actually say executive administrator, but it would be language that would incorporate executive administrator. Yes, because you can go very broad in a sufficient assumption question as long as it captures whatever you're talking about. No such thing as too strong of an answer on a sufficient assumption question. We want, yep. the, we want a big hand. Well, the point is we just have to prove that Murray can't get this job. Yep. So something like all positions in the entire universe, in the history of the universe, are on the board. Well, if that's the case, then this executive administrator role is on the board. And so, sorry, Murray, you don't get your appointment. Yep. So that would do it. That would be fine. I mean, it's overly strong, but this is not a necessary assumption question. This is a sufficient assumption question. That's right. Okay. Okay, so answer A says anyone with a master's degree and without a felony conviction is eligible for appointment to the executive board. 
that does nothing. We're, you know, we, we know exactly what we're looking for. We're looking for executive administrator is on the board. Yep. And that's like, also A doesn't even apply to Murray because Murray does have a felony conviction. Exactly. So, huh? A is out. Yeah. B, only candidates eligible for appointment to the executive board can be accepted for position the position of executive administrator. Yeah, it does it in a roundabout sort of a way, right? Mm-hmm. B doesn't say the executive administrator is on the board, but it has that same effect. It says if you're not eligible for the board, then you're not eligible for executive administrator. That's right. And, and since so- Murray is not eligible for the board due to his felony conviction, then if B were the law, then I don't see how Murray can be our executive administrator either. Yeah, this sounds pretty good. Yeah. So keep it open. C, an undergraduate degree is not necessary for acceptance to for the position of executive administrator. It doesn't apply to Murray. doesn't even matter, right? And this is actually would be something that would help people get this position, not prevent them from getting yeah. it. Yeah, no. D, if Murray did not have a felony conviction, he would be accepted for the position of executive administrator. <laughs> also doesn't apply because he does have a felony conviction? Yep. Okay. E, the felony charge on which Murray was convicted is relevant to the duties of the position of executive administrator. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to help that a lot in order to make it the answer, right? You'd be like, well, if the felony is relevant to the executive administrator role, then you can't... You can't have that role if it's a if you have a relevant felony charge, right? Like, you know, yeah. imagine that the executive administrator was like a bookkeeping role and Murray had been uh, had been convicted of embezzlement before, mm-hmm. right? That would be a relevant felony charge. And yeah, that would certainly weaken, you know, that would that would certainly seem to suggest that Murray should not get the position of executive administrator. But we're not looking to strengthen this argument. We're looking yeah. to prove this argument. And that means something very specific on the LSAT. That means you got to take the evidence that you have and connect it just inexorably, connect it 100% to the desired conclusion. So E might be a great strengthener, but it's not the 100% strengthener like B is. Mm-hmm. If B is the law, then we win, right? That's just summary judgment. We're, we're done. We're not having a trial. We win. That's right. And, and so that's... That's what we're looking for on a sufficient assumption question. Make the argument 100% win, and B is the only one that does it here. Yeah, so E's kind of an example, like you were saying, of basically a strengthened answer. Not a great one, but it might strengthen it a little bit. And if B didn't exist and this were a strengthened question, then maybe so, but this is a perfect example of how sufficient assumptions go way further than the typical strengthened answer. Yeah, and, well, I mean... It should also be noted, I guess, that if this were a strengthened question, B would still be the best answer because you can't strengthen an argument more than 100% proving it to be correct. Sure. Right? So I, I frequently do on a strengthened question, if this were a strengthened question, I would be looking for a sufficient assumption. If I could find a sufficient assumption in the answer choice as well, then that's the answer for a strengthened mm-hmm. question. Sure. Um, that is the best possible strengthener. But yeah... Um, so yeah, even if this were a strengthened question, the answer would still be B. Mm-hmm. Um, if it were a strengthened question and B were not there, then I would choose E because E does seem to help the argument somewhat. Somewhat, yep. yeah. Cool. Awesome. All righty. Well, um, as always, we appreciate all your questions and 
please feel free to keep emailing them in. You can email us at help at thinkinglsat.com. Uh, you can also email us individually if you want to. Uh, I'm ben at strategyprep.com and Nathan at Nathan foxelsot.com sorry about that nathan no that's cool you can tweet me also at in fox i don't really use twitter a whole lot but i would if people tweeted questions to me i would absolutely respond um i don't know what else do we want to plug how's it going with your score tracker ben people using it's, it yeah they are um want to give uh, out the url for that again yeah it's a uh, strategyprep.com forward slash tracker and uh just keep making progress on it a little bit by little bit. I'm meeting with the developer tomorrow. We're going to talk about how to give you access to your students, hopefully. And, um, well, no, we're definitely going to talk about it. Just figure out how to do that. Yeah. And adding some other features right now, uh, if people put in six or seven tests, or actually they only need to put in two, but if they have a bunch in there, it will average all of their scores so they can oh. see... Their averages, but I want to make it so they can select which tests they want to average so they can be averaging the most recent ones, which are going to be obviously more helpful than mm. the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So just uh, slowly but surely adding more stuff. Cool. I, I look forward to adding this to my um, syllabus. I'm like really um, pushing it out to my class because I think it's going to make, you know, it's going to be better for them, give them the data. Um, if we can get me the data, that's going to be awesome. Yeah, I could like plan on the fly, you know, pl plan little lessons based on what kinds of stuff the class is missing. So yeah, yeah, I think this thing has a lot of potential. Again, it's strategyprep.com forward slash tracker. That's right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hey, we have a uh, we have a special guest coming up, Ben. Um, in a couple weeks, next episode, we are going to have Heather Jarvis on the show, and uh, Heather is an expert in the financing of um, higher education, including law school. So if anybody has questions out there about uh, how much is this going to cost? How do I get, you know, how, how do I uh, pay for all of this? Um, what are my payments going to look like when I get out of school? Is there grant money? Is there scholarship money, et cetera, et cetera? Um, please send us those questions in advance. Um, again, it's uh, help at thinkinglsat.com. Yeah, we're going to record this on September 2nd, right? Yes. So if you can send us your questions before 10 a.m. on Eastern Time on September 2nd or even 11 a.m., we'll get them into the show or even noon, I guess. Yeah, or, you know, how about September 1st? <laughs> yeah. We'll I'm just saying to... if someone's listening to this on the morning of and they're like, yeah, I have a question, email us. We'll we'll get in there maybe. Yeah. So, so But, yeah, September 1st. Specifically finance-related questions for uh, Heather Jarvis, and we'll look forward to uh, answering those. And yeah. That'll be, I guess, episode 41. Cool. Cool. All right. Thanks. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, tell a friend, you know, we don't have an advertising budget. So uh, grab your study partner's iPhone and just go ahead and subscribe them to the Thinking LSAT <laughs> podcast. Hit the five stars while you're at it. That's right. And, your, you know, your parents, too, that's fine. Just totally. more people. The, all the computers at the library at your school, get those things. <laughs> <laughs> nah, just kidding. Um, all right, everybody. Thanks. We'll talk to you next time. Yeah, thanks.